Sounds fair. Sounds good. So what I'll do is uh, I'll do the intro later. Uh, your pitch to get me on your show was incredibly impressive, by the way. Good job with that. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm kind of believe that it worked out, to be honest. <laughs> I was thinking... I sent it to Brian Stoffel too, and he was like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> oh, my. I was thinking, there's no chance this guy take me seriously. Um... <laughs> Welcome to Adelante, the podcast filled with inspiring stories of people embracing their uniqueness. I'm Alfonso Comino, your host. Our guest today is Brian Feroldi. Brian is on a mission to spread financial wellness. He is an educator, financial coach, content provider for the Monthly Full Investment Services, a podcaster, and soon to be the author of his first book, Why Does the Stock Market Go Up?, where he educates everyday investors on how to demystify the stock market. Brian's non-nonsense approach to investing is followed by nearly 300,000 people across platforms such as Twitter and YouTube. I count myself as a big fan of Brian. I have learned plenty from him over the last few years, and I am always impressed by his can-do attitude. His passion for finance and investing in general is contagious even for people with low levels of interest in such topics. In this conversation, we cover how he managed to pivot his career from the medical industry into finance after using a setback as an opportunity. We also talk about how Brian masters public platforms to educate and engage with people, and even how he recently exchanged tweets with none other than Elon Musk, one of the greatest innovators of our time. We also touch on his learnings from writing a book during the COVID lockdown period and tips for anyone that wants to write better and more clearly. Brian closes the conversation discussing why the 20s will be the most disruptive decade in human history. I'm thankful that Brian came on this podcast not once, but twice. Sadly, our first recording experienced technical issues. He kindly agreed to do it all over again a second time. Enjoy this conversation with Brian Feroldi. Brian, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you around. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. A small disclaimer for everybody before we get started. Anything that we discuss in this show is for entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. It's meant to serve as an evergreen content about how to invest, but not where to invest. And remember, anytime you invest, please always do your own research, because otherwise it's more gambling than actually investing. Is that right, Brian? That is fair. So, Brian, I was thinking a really neat place for us to start this conversation will be to talk about your interesting career and I'm extremely excited to talk about it because today you're an accomplished financial educator and a public figure. However, you started in a very different field. You started working on the medical field and I was wondering if you can tell us how did you transition from the medical field into becoming the person that you are today? So when I went to college, I was in college from 2000 to 2004. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I had no idea what I wanted my career to be. I had no long-term master plan. Because of that, I chose to major in business because that seemed like the most flexible uh, option uh, for down the road. When I was in business school, the university I was at said, you know, if you say your major is healthcare management, we'll knock $5,000 off your tuition. So I said, well, I guess my major is healthcare management. That's how that decision went. When I got out of school, I applied for some jobs, and one of the ones that I got was through a family friend. It was at Insulet when it was still a, a startup. 
pre-FDA approval, pre-revenue, pre-everything. It was firmly in the cash-burning R&D stage. And it was, again, sheer luck that I got involved with this company. Insulet is now an unbelievably successful company. It's currently worth somewhere around $20 billion. So that was just a sheer luck, wonderful start to my career. The nice thing about being on a rocket ship early on is that as that rocket ship takes off, it affords the people that work there a lot of opportunities. So I started out in marketing, and then I got interested in sales, which paid a whole lot better and provided you with the freedom to work out of your car. So I jumped on that opportunity when it came to me, and I was good at it. But when I was in sales, I was in my car for like 30 or 40 hours per week. That's a lot of time to be by yourself, essentially driving around. Well, the thing that I naturally gravitated towards, uh, the thing where I naturally took my interest was money and investing. So I spent all of that time in the car researching, researching and learning. I listened to audio books. I listened to investing books. I listened to investor conference calls. And when I got home uh, at nighttime, uh, I was going on the Motley Fool's discussion boards and connecting and learning from other investors. So it's just the thing that naturally attracted my time. Over time, I eventually got to go to the headquarters uh, as a member. I met many of the people that work there in person, um, and I just love being around the Motley Fool. It's such a wonderful uh, community. Uh, after more than a decade on the job, uh, things went south with my medical device uh, career, and I was essentially shown the door. Uh, luckily, I had built up a relationship with the Motley Fool for years uh, at that point, and they were employing me part-time to do some very, very small things. And I reached out to them and said, I would absolutely love to to write for you guys as my full-time profession. And they gave me a chance. Uh, so that's how I made that transition. While I was going through that, I was also getting my um, MBA uh, at a local university. And I remember I was talking to one of my professors and I was like, I'm in medical devices right now. I really want to be in finance. How do I do that? And he was like, oh, that's a really hard transition to make. And he helped to introduce me to some people. But it was really all on me. It was the relationships that I built for myself for years beforehand that made the transition uh, uh, possible. So that, that's how it happened. That's a really good story, Brian. One of the things I like most about that is how you managed to pivot your career after things went sour in Insulet and how you used that as an opportunity to end up with something greater. Yes. And the other thing I want to comment, you managed to put your foot in the door in the monthly full even before you needed a job, more as a hobby that probably helped you later on and as you made contacts and as you were so familiar with the company, helped you to land a job there. So I think two key takeaways in there of what you did to transform your career. As an avid consumer of podcasts and other content produced by you and the the full team, it feels from the outside like there are tremendous synergies and camaraderie amongst you all. Is that something that feels like that from the inside, Brian? Definitely. One wonderful thing about The Motley Fool is that everybody that works there or becomes a contractor there in some way is really passionate about investing. That's one thing that The uh, Motley Fool does really well is they hire from within their own membership base. Because of that, you have a shared interest with everybody that works there. And moreover, they've won so many best places to work awards that the number of applicants that they get for any given job, it's incredible. It's basically 
as hard to get a job at the Motley Fool as it is to like get into Harvard. Because of that, the number of people that get through that process tend to be incredibly easygoing, passionate, enthusiastic about investing. And for me personally, I just find it so easy to get along and build relationships with, with people like that. Yeah, and it definitely shows. There's so many talented young people working there that I admire so much. So that's why I wanted to ask, because it definitely feels that everybody's talented. But also what I take away the most is how good the vibe is, right? When you listen to the podcast, I wanted to ask. So Brian, your personal mission is to spread financial wellness. And you have plenty of fronts open where you do just that. And we will spend the rest of the podcast talking about those fronts. So to get us started on that topic, I'm going to read a quote directly from your website. It says, Brian started investing in 2004. In the beginning, he got his teeth kicked in. What are some of the key events that have happened to you from getting your teeth kicked in and now educating thousands of people about investing on a daily basis? Well, when I first started investing, I had no clue what I was doing. I had read a little bit about investing in the stock market, but I didn't even know a lot of the basics. I knew how to basically pull up a stock ticker, see the price, and that was it. Like I couldn't tell you anything about what a company did, uh, what its financial statements looked like, what the recent news was on it, who was running it, how much stock they owned. Like none of the things that I use today to make investing decisions, I, I didn't understand any of that in 2004. So at the time, my mindset was all of my natural instincts that I had about investing. Uh, one of them that I know a lot of people have when they first start out is they focus exclusively on the share price, the dollar price of one share of stock. So that's something that I did in the beginning. I was very intensely focused on buying stocks that traded for less than $5 per share, and the lower the share price, the better. The logic was sound to me at the time, which was, well, I only have a few hundred dollars to invest. I can only, quote unquote, afford to buy three shares of Amazon or five shares of Coca-Cola. However, I could buy 200 shares of a crappy company that traded for a dollar. And my logic was it would be much faster for a $1 stock to become a $2 stock than it would be for a $50 stock to become a $100 stock. So as a result of that, my sole criteria was share price. And I did some searching through some screeners to look for companies that I seemed to know something about or had somewhat of an exciting story that also traded for a low share price. One of the first investments that I ever made was in US Airways. Uh, US Airways was a United States-based airline that traded for $1.14 or something like that per share. I thought, well, one, I've heard of this brand. Two, I've flown on this company's airplanes before. And three, it's a dollar per share. How can I go wrong? So I bought that stock. And within a matter of weeks, I was down 50% on that dollar per share stock. I had no clue why. So I ended up selling it. Only later did I learn why shares were down so much. And you're going to love this. They were literally going through a bankruptcy restructuring after I bought shares. 
So the stock was trading for about a dollar or something. And then I bought shares and, and the company was going through bankruptcy. So I literally bought a bankrupt airline as my first quote unquote investment. So of course I deserved to lose a good chunk of my capital. And it was just really going from failure to failure to failure in the beginning where I learned what not to do. I'm naturally a teacher at heart, and I'm a big fan of sharing the lessons that I learned the hard way with other people so that they themselves can avoid them. Yeah, and I think starting with a big loss like that one you described with uh, US Airways probably teach you about what you were doing and make you focus on what was right and wrong, right? A good segue is to talk about you published an investment checklist with uh, Brian Stoffel, which is a fellow full member with you. And in there, people have the opportunity to evaluate what is important when evaluating a stock, which is not necessarily the actual value of the particular individual share. Although I think that's a common mistake that most people still will do today. And you definitely can see that in cryptocurrency where it's even more pronounced. So what is a good checklist for investment and what should people be looking at now that we have discarded the ticket price? One thing that I recommend to everybody that's involved in investing, and I don't care if your strategy is similar to mine or if you're a trader or whatever strategy you are pursuing, this exercise still has a whole lot of value. So the first thing I would suggest people do is write down a list of all of the attributes that they find attractive in an investment. So for me, that would include good financial statements, solid balance sheet, profits, growing free cash flow, a wide and enduring moat, huge potential for growth, optionality, good relationship between the customers and the the company, recurring revenue, an invested and capable management team, a stock that's already beaten the market, etc. Just write down top to bottom all of the attributes that you can think of that would make a company attractive to you. Then make a second list. And on that second list, write down all the things that you don't want in a, a company. Uh, so for me, those are things like accounting irregularities, uh, customer concentration, the industry that the company operates in is being disrupted or seriously at risk of being disrupted in the next five years. I don't want to invest in companies that are reliant on an outside market price for success. Uh, For example, um, I don't like investing in gold miners because they will rise or fall based solely on what the price of gold does. And that is something that is not within their control. I don't like high dilution. I don't like companies that are uh, acquisitive as a way to growth. I don't like it when the financials are overly complicated, etc. So make a list of all the attributes that you like and then all the attributes that you don't like. Then rank them, starting with the attributes that you find most appealing at the top and all the way down to least important at the bottom and do the same thing for the bad, for the attributes that you don't like. Then take 100 points and assign them starting at the top of the list and heading downward. What this exercise forces you to do is it forces you to weigh the attributes of a business that you are most attractive to and de-emphasize the attributes of a business that you are attracted to but don't really matter. And the same thing 
for the risk section. Then, as you are looking at potential investments, go through and match up those companies according to the, the checklist that you created. What this will do is it will be a way for you to highlight using a system what companies or assets or stocks are most fit the style that you're looking for, and it will repel the ones that you are not attracted to. So I did this process myself. Uh, Brian Stoffel did a process uh, similar, although he uses a different uh, point scoring system than I do. But this system I have now been using for uh, almost four years, and I have now rated hundreds of stocks. And importantly, this isn't a list that spits out for me this stock is going to go up 10x or this stock is going to fall 50% or anything like that. What my checklist is designed to do is to shine a light on stocks that offer the highest business quality according to the attributes that I find most attractive. And it allows me to ignore the companies that may be attractive in some way, but don't fit the vast majority of the things that I'm looking for. Once I go through this process, I have a list of companies that score exceptionally well on my list. And from there, I will go through another process uh, to add them to my portfolio based on other factors such as valuation and uh, valuation versus other investment opp opportunities at any given time. So the score itself is an indication of it would be a company that I would be attracted to. But the more important thing about a scoring system is that it forces you to go through this consistent process and checking all the things that you find uh, important about a, a company. And what you discover in the process of filling out the checklist is even more important than the scoring, the final score itself. So will you say that doing something so detailed will also improve your condition to hold the stock when the times are bad? It's very hard to know what's going to happen on the next few months, right? And perhaps you do your work correctly, but sadly something happens and the stock goes down tremendously in the short term. But because you did the research, you feel more confident to hold for a very long term. Is this also part of such a laborious exercise? Yeah, completely. No matter what stock you buy, you can be assured that at some point that stock is going to get wrecked. Like, Market forces will demand that every stock, even the best stocks on the market, will at some point go down hard. And even Berkshire Hathaway, which is one of the most stable, uh, predictable uh, businesses that exists, it's broadly diversified. It owns dozens or even hundreds at this point of wonderful businesses, has a war trust. Of, I mean, pick a business attribute and Berkshire Hathaway uh, has it. Yet even Berkshire Hathaway's stock top tick to bottom tick has fallen more than 50%. I believe now it's four different uh, times throughout its uh, history. If you're only looking at the, the share price, um, of course you would get scared if you didn't understand or have conviction in the underlying uh, company. And, and by the way, that 50% drop is in Berkshire Hathaway. You can only imagine what it is for high growth dynamic companies that are, that are just emerging. Uh, it's very common for these stocks, top tick to bottom tick, to fall 60%, 70%, or even 80%. And the only way that you will have the fortitude to hold throughout that inevitable downturn, uh, which I think is required if you want to generate 
the bet the biggest and best returns uh, tax free over long periods of time is you have to have the conviction to continue to hold. And the only way you're going to get the conviction to hold is to understand the thesis for owning that stock in the first place, as well as all the risks that go along with that stock. So again, that's the value of taking a company through this process. It's the process of learning about what could go right, what could go wrong, and how well this company fits your investing style. One last question on that point. You mentioned optionality. I find very hard to measure optionality because this is kind of Will the team embrace the unknown and maximize on a potential new opportunity that doesn't exist today? How do you value optionality in a company? Good question. Optionality, to me, is an incredibly important business attribute. Optionality is the ability of a company to create new products and new services that open up new revenue opportunities for the company over time. And when I look back at some of the best companies that I've ever purchased, Optionality is one of the key things that enabled those companies to dramatically outperform. Imagine you're buying Amazon in 2000 or 2003 or something like that. The only thing that you would see at the time is the core e-commerce business, which obviously held tremendous potential. But at the time, if you bought Amazon in 2003, you unwittingly purchased you unwittingly purchased Amazon Web Services and Amazon Prime uh, that were going to be created years from then, but you didn't know it. Those things, Amazon Web Services, Amazon Prime, have been a major reason why the company's value has increased so dramatically because they have opened up brand new revenue opportunities that didn't exist uh, previously. Uh, but to your point, there's no numeric number that you can look at and say, this company has optionality, this one doesn't. Uh, but there are some shortcuts uh, that you can uh, use. Uh, two shortcuts that, uh, that I would recommend looking at uh, is first, and most importantly, is the company's own history. If a company has a history of entering new markets and launching new products and opportunities, the odds are good that it's going to continue to do so uh, into the future. Uh, another shortcut is to look at the company's mission uh, statement. Uh, if, if a company's mission statement is larger, going after a larger opportunity than its current uh, product catalog would suggest, uh, that would suggest that the company has bigger ambitions than just its current market opportunity. Uh, Tesla is a company with tremendous optionality, most optionality I've ever seen. And their mission statement is to accelerate the transition to sustainable energy. Well, you knew right from the get-go that uh, the company was focused on electric cars, but the transition to sustainable energy is far more widespread than just getting people to drive electric cars. It means electric generation. It means electric uh, storage. And C, if you looked at the company's mission statement, the company's ambitions were far beyond just selling high-end uh, sports cars. Another hack that you can use is to go to the most innovative company lists that are made each year by companies like Fortune and just look through the top 100 most innovative companies uh, that are on that list at a year. Uh, check for the ones that are publicly traded. And the odds are good that if uh, third parties are calling out the company for being highly innovative, that those companies are going to be the ones that roll out new products and services in any given year. But to your point, 
you can't just read through a 10K and check a box that says, yes, this company has optionality. It's something you learn when you discover the company, when you take a closer look at the underlying fundamentals of a company. But I do think that you can still use a checklist to indicate this company is far more likely to have optionality in it than this other company. And I think that's a good answer to a point that I hear you many times saying in your podcast is that sometimes valuation can be misleading for a long-term potential of a company or things like price-to-earnings radios. And that's not how you will find uh, multi-baggers, which is a word you use often. So I think this optionality answer probably combined with that one. But since you brought up Tesla, Ryan, I hope you don't mind me to ask you, how did it feel to get Elon Musk answer one of your tweets recently? How did it feel? Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I tweet out about how Tesla has performed since Elon has said a variety of crazy things. And the answer was, uh, you know, he's, he tweeted something, quote unquote, crazy. The media made a huge deal out of it. it some investors freaked out and pointed out he, he was such a bad leader, et cetera. And yet the stock is up, you know, several hundred percent, if not several thousand percent uh, since he said those things. That caught his attention for whatever reason, and he responded to, to it. So that I actually found out because a friend of mine uh, sent me a text message of the screenshot of it. So yeah, that was a highlight for me, uh, the Twitter highlight for me of the year. I believe that. And one of the other things that you do, you're really great in social media. And obviously, we mentioned that in Gumroad, you have your checklist. You also have now a new portfolio tracker that you have with Brian Wither in there. And one of the things that you do as well is that you have your YouTube channel together with Brian Stoffer, where you both analyze companies in one hour from scratch and streaming live, which I find incredibly entertaining. Albert, I cannot watch live because of the time difference. So how do you came up with the idea with Brian to do such videos about understanding a company in one hour from scratch? So when COVID was really ramping up in March of 2020, uh, one of the things that The Motley Fool decided to do was to launch this new service that they called Motley Fool Live. At the time, it was a Zoom Zoom session where they invited their premium members uh, to come in and watch the inner workings of the Fool. And at the beginning, it was a show that literally went from 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to, I think, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, time. They were still figuring out the format. And there were so many people that were stuck at home and were learning about investing that it was a hit. We immediately had a good audience. And we also, at the time, had 12 hours of live stream content that we had to create literally within, within a few days. It went from this thing not existing to all of a sudden we had to fill and create 12 hours of, of content. Now, there are dozens, if not hundreds of people that contributed to Motley Fool Alive, and I was personally doing about 20 hours per week at the start, and over time, uh, it has evolved. So to fill that time, we were coming up with whatever ideas that we could think of. One of the ideas that I came up with was to research a company from scratch. So to take a company and to read its SEC filings and kind of show the process we go through on the inside, or at least one way to do it, where we take a company we've never heard of and come up with an investing thesis of it uh, over the course of, of an hour. After doing that a couple of times with Brian Stoffel, we just loved it. And members really liked it because if you've never researched a stock 
uh, before, it can seem overwhelming. Like you don't even know where to begin. You don't know what SEC filings to click on. The entire process is kind of uh, uh, arcane and mysterious. So we started to do these hour-long uh, deep dives, and we both thought it was one of the best things that we did because it was so educational. And when we were starting out as investors, we would have loved to be able to peek over an analyst's shoulder and watch them uh, do this process. Over time, the show the idea that we did eventually got eliminated as The Motley Fool kind of changed the way that The Motley Fool Live worked. But both Brian and I were still just loved doing it. And we said, well, how about we do this on my YouTube channel? And we you know, talked to The Motley Fool about it and with us doing at it. So that's how we started it. And it was really the underlying reason that we did it. It was an excuse for me and Brian to talk to each other every week. That was the reason we did it. We're like, this is an excuse for us to get together, chat with each other uh, every week and do something uh, that we love. And it's grown from there into one of the popular segments that we do on my YouTube channel. We both think it's one of the most educational things that we do. I guess it takes me back to the top when we mentioned about is the camaraderie between only full members as real as it feels. And for you guys to have an excuse to talk an hour every week, uh, I guess the answer is yes. And I think it's quite successful. You're up close to 40K followers in YouTube, which is a staggering amount. So congratulations. And I really cannot let you off the hook without mentioning your upcoming book. You have been quite vocal in Twitter about it, even crowdsourcing the book cover and your book, Brian, that you are, I'm going to say, mostly completed now, is why does the stock market go up? So what can you tell us about writing a book and what is your book about? So for the last 10 years, um, as I've learned more about the market, one kind of question that I've always had in the back of my mind was, why does a stock market go up? If, if you study any investment book uh, ever, almost all of them will show you this chart of the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial since it was launched. And it's just clear as day that the long-term returns of the stock market fantastic, and the market goes up consistently about 10% per year on average. That was never an intuitive thing for me. And I just personally never understood why that happening. If you talk to, to people or investment planners, they'll always say, uh, you want your long-term capital in the stock market. Uh, yes, it goes down hard sometimes, but over the long term, it always goes up. And I just personally didn't ever comprehend why that was happening. I've read dozens of investment books. So many of them are wonderful where I've learned so much, but I've never felt that there was a book out there that really went into answering that question in detail, which is a pretty fundamental question that I think everybody that has money in the markets needs to understand. It's kind of several hundred years ago, people would be like, well, why does the sun come up every day? And, and people would be like, I don't know. And they'd come up with all these theories about why it would happen. And yet it was predictable that the sum would come up every day. Well, I always had that same thought about the markets. Yeah, the market always goes up over time. But why? Why does it always go up? And in America alone, there are about 100 million people that have money in the market and they are betting their future retirement on the market continuing to go up. And I have no data to, to back this up, but I just know in my bones that if you asked all 100 million, why does the stock market go up, you would get the wrong answer at least 99% of the time. 
So I've always wondered why a book didn't exist that was just called Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? After consulting in 2020 with uh, Morgan Housel and Brian Stoffel, I kind of said, well, maybe I should write the book to explain this concept to people in as simple of terms as possible. And I got started in 2020, and I've been working on it diligently uh, ever since. Uh, it does take quite a bit of time to write a book and go through the entire process, but I'm just now at the end stages of that. And the mission of the book is to really demystify uh, how the stock market works for the everyday investor. So I want this to be the on-ramp book that when somebody comes up to you in real life and says, I'm interested in the stock market, where should I start? My book will be a great starting point for them to just get their most basic questions about the stock market answered. So what are some of the reasons why it always goes up? Let the cat out of the bag and say it, it traditionally always goes up. Yeah, the reason that it goes up is pretty simple to understand. Stocks have value. So let's start with that question, which is something that I do cover. But why is a stock worth anything? Uh, why is one share of Apple uh, today uh, trading for about, let's see, $167 per share? Why does that have any value at all? Why are people willing to pay $167 to buy a share of Apple today? Well, the answer there is that when you're buying a share of Apple, you're buying the company's asset and the company's future profits. That's what you're buying. You're buying rights to a portion of the company's assets and future uh, profits. Well, the exact same thing is true of the stock market in general. If you're buying an index fund that tracks the S&P 500, you are literally buying shares in 500 companies. And importantly, you're buying the assets and future profits of those 500 uh, companies. So stock prices over the long term follow in lockstep what, what happens with their underlying company's fundamentals. So if profits of those 500 companies increase over time, the stock prices will also increase over time. So I discuss in detail why there's a relationship between those two things, stock prices and uh, business profits, why those two things are not connected at all in the short term, why they're connected completely in the long term, and most importantly, what are the factors that are going to drive profits higher indefinitely. And when does the book come out, Brian? We don't have an exact release date as of yet. Uh, my best guess at this point would be that it's going to be available for pre-order uh, starting in January of 2022, and that would make it available in people's hands sometime between March and April of uh, 2022. So it's been quite a process and taken a little bit longer uh, than I would like it to, uh, but I think I'm going to be really happy with the final outcome. Great. So that took you two years end to end, so to speak, to starting to delivery of the book at least. What are some of the things you learn while writing a book? Oh my God. Uh, so I am not naturally good at writing or grammar or spelling. Uh, those are actually weaknesses of mine. My mind is built more for math and engineering and logic. So writing is challenging for a lot of people. It's especially challenging for me. Uh, if you told me 10 years ago that I would have written a book, I would have laughed at you as in like, well, why would I do that? I have no interest in writing. Why would I take the time and go through the painful process of writing uh, a book? So just starting with that uh, as a background, I learned a lot about myself uh, from, from writing a book. Now, I wouldn't have done it 
if I hadn't been a writer for The Motley Fool for the last six years, uh, because that job forces you to write every single day and you get better just naturally through repetition over time at spelling, at grammar, at expressing ideas, at succinctness. Um, I would also say that Twitter has been hugely helpful for making me a better writer because Twitter rewards brevity and formatting and making things, concepts as easy to understand as, as possible. Um, but the way that I wrote the book was following Jerry Seinfeld's uh, method, if you're familiar with that. Jerry Seinfeld was once asked, how do you write better jokes? And he basically says, write jokes every day and, and create a calendar for yourself and put an X on it every day that you write a joke and, a Z, and nothing if you don't write a joke. And his, he says, your goal is to get as many X's in a row as you possibly can. So the day that I started writing the book, um, I marked an X on a calendar and I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't stop writing every day uh, until the book was finished uh, with the writing process for the initial phase. And I'm happy to say that I, that I hit that goal. So every day for about seven months, uh, I worked on the book and it was really a, just fighting my own natural instincts to not want to write was the hardest part. Yeah, I think I've heard that in an episode with Tim Ferriss that uh, Jerry Seinfeld mentioned about the X. He also mentioned something else that caught my ear is that he said, never show what you write to anybody for at least 24 hours because there's never going to be good enough feedback for what you did. I don't know if you apply something similar where you kept what you write close to your heart for a while at least. So that's something that's a good idea in, in general. Whenever I would write an article for The Motley Fool, there's a couple of good tactics that you can use to really uh, catch yourself and really make yourself a better writer. One of them is definitely wait a day and then reread what you wrote. And you'll come back and realize how bad certain sections of it are. And another trick that you can use is to say whatever you just wrote out loud. Read it out loud to yourself, not in your head, literally out loud speaking it. And it's amazing how many errors you will catch and how you will be able to edit yourself better and make things more clear. That's not always possible with Twitter because Twitter is kind of a live stream of your, your thoughts. So you can't edit yourself uh, too much with that. But in general, if you do want to write better, waiting a day and reading things out loud will uh, improve your writing dramatically. And you are a great follower on Twitter. You have like a, probably 300,000 people by now I haven't checked recently. What are some of the things that you learned from having such a avid follower like you do and uh, what are the things that you highlight from being so active in Twitter? Well, I've kind of had to change my approach over time. Uh, when I first started on Twitter, I was writing whatever I wanted to and no one was paying attention uh, to it. Uh, but after a while, uh, as my following continued to grow, people did start to pay attention uh, to it. So I had to be more thoughtful about the things I wrote because people were actually going to uh, read it. But I'm still not perfect at that. And every now and then I tweet something that I uh, regret or is a clear omission of some part. And people will immediately point out all the flaws and whatever you type uh, whenever you have an audience uh, to look at. But overall, I've been incredibly happy uh, to have spent the time to build up a following on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is such an overlooked resource and it gets such a bad rap in our society. People think that it's just a toxic wasteland of celebrity gossip and politics and arguments. And of course, there's a ton of that on the platform. But if you cultivate a list of people that you want to follow 
and you're mindful about that, it's amazing the quality of information that you can uh, learn and even more importantly, the connections that you can make uh, with people on Twitter. I've got the chance to meet some of my podcast heroes, uh, some of my book heroes. Random people will reach out to me and they'll share research with me. They'll come up with stock ideas. So overall, Twitter has been a phenomenally positive experience in my life. But uh, there's no doubt that you do have to develop uh, thick skin uh, because you're going to get unwanted, unsolicited feedback on it whenever you are uh, wrong about something. So as anything, there's positives and negatives, and it's really about how you use it. So for anybody listening, that's at Brian Feroldi altogether. Definitely, you should follow Brian. He's full of positivity and uh, good old learning. So Brian, before we close it, um, is there any other source of information that you tend to recommend people to check? So to recap, you have your checklist, you also have your own sub stacks, and you have your Twitter, which is very informative, like your podcast. But outside what you produce, what are the other sources or books that you tend to recommend people that want to learn about investment? These days, I'm not as big on books as I had been in years past. That's not because books aren't tremendous places to to learn. Uh, they are, but I've been blown away by the quality of content that you can get on podcasts, uh, on YouTube, and through uh, digital courses, uh, if that kind of thing interests you. Uh, so I would say uh, I personally watch at least an hour of YouTube every day. I, it's one of the things I do uh, every night before I I fall asleep. And YouTube is like any other social uh, media platform. Of course, you can go on there and see mind-numbing, dumb, stupid entertainment that does nothing but, but rot your brain. But you can also use it to learn about any subject uh, that you can imagine. And just just channels like uh, Crash Course and, uh, and TED Talks um, and Smarter Every Day and Mark Rober are filled with science lessons or lessons about art or history. And it's just amazing the education that you can give yourself by engaging with the right channels on uh, YouTube. Uh, if you're on the go, uh, the same can be said of, of podcasts. My genre of choice is typically money and business and finance uh, related. And there are dozens of wonderful podcasts in that space that you can keep up with. But you can also hear about wonderful uh, stories or and you can get really education on any concept uh, that you can think of if you listen to uh, and to podcast. Uh, one thing that I haven't done that I'm probably going to start exploring in 2022 is get a subscription to Audible so I can listen to my favorite audiobooks uh, while I'm on the go. But I would say between podcasts and, and YouTube, you can learn an incredible amount about uh, investing. Yeah, and I think the younger generation really knows that better than probably us because they learn so many things on YouTube. It's interesting to see how they learn something and they always tell you, I just check on YouTube. Uh, so it's a great resource to learn anything you're willing to learn. So Brian, before we end this call, we always end with the same closing question to all our guests. And that is, what are you most excited about the future? The future in general or my future? Oh, it's an open question. So different people take it different ways. Sure. I'll answer it both ways then. Uh, for my immediate future, I'm most excited about the launch of my book, uh, simply because it's taken up so much of my mind uh, to kind of create, edit, and write that thing that it's going to feel like giving birth to a kid once it's out there in the wild. Uh, so that is something I'm most looking forward to uh, uh, personally. Uh, when I think about the next five plus years, though, I think the 2020s are going to be the most disruptive uh, decade in human 
history. And when I think about the enormous challenges that humanity is taking on, uh, specifically related to uh, climate change, income uh, inequality, I'm incredibly hopeful about what the world is going to look like uh, in 20 and 2030. I think for the most part, the world is moving in incredibly positive direction uh, forward. And I think the technologies that are going to come online are going to make our lives so much better than they are today. So I'm incredibly excited to watch those those disruptions take hold. So Brian, really wish you the best of luck with that book. I can't wait to get my hands on it. And I really always appreciate your optimism. And that was a beautiful way to close it as you did. I always learned so much from you, from your podcast. So I really encourage anybody to follow you in Industry Focus or any other podcast that you do, get your book, follow you on Twitter, get your Substack, and become a bit of a, you know, obsessed like I am because I learned so much from you. So Brian, thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I was incredibly impressed with the way that you reached out to me and asked me to come on this podcast. So if you have that level of enthusiasm uh, with your podcast moving forward, I see great things happening for you. Thank you so much. like this conversation with Brian, please leave a comment and a rating wherever you get your podcast from. That will help like-minded people discover the show. If you or anyone you know has an inspiring story and would like to be featured in the show, or if you want to reach us directly, our email is hi at insugi.com, or you can hit me directly on Twitter at Alfonso underscore Comino. Thank you for listening. Adelante. Adelante.